1: Tuned into Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. And we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode
2: thirty-five for November of twenty eighteen. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about the scariest monsters in genre television, in the wake of Halloween, of course. And our show topics include a variety of witchy reboots that premiered in October charmed on the CW and chilling adventures of Sabrina on Netflix. Yes. And this was a very surprising
1: couple of topics for both of us a little bit out of our wheelhouse, but we really found that they had a lot of stuff to comb for discussion and looking forward to that. But we also have an interview that falls into the Halloweeny feel of the podcast and that's with Adi Shankar, the showrunner of Castlevania. And he's got a lot of interesting things to share with us about that show and his career in general.
2: Yep. Season two just dropped. I haven't seen any of it yet. I, I'm i waiting. I'm excited.
1: But we do have some spoilers. Uh, not too many. Uh, we did the first. Did you do the first two or the first three of Charm? The three? first three. First three, which is that's how much has aired since... This podcast is being recorded and for Chilling Adventures of Serena, I chose to just do the first three as well, mainly because that has a self-contained storyline, but also so that if you haven't finished it yet, there's not going to be any spoilers for the later episodes. Although I will hint at some threads that either get resolved or don't, but I won't say how. So we only have spoilers for the first three episodes of both shows today. And I want to mention before we get started here on our creepiest monsters in genre television that sci-fi fidelity is coming up on its three year anniversary. And we've got some changes in store that I wanted to let our audience know about. And it's not going to be hugely different. We're going to keep the same discussion topics that we have and the interview portion, but we're going to break it up into weekly podcasts because I know a lot of people are used to consuming their podcasts weekly. And we are going to actually take the four segments that we usually do and send them out four weeks or one week apart. So we'll have the discussion topic We'll have a show topic, another show topic later, and of course the interview, and they will be randomly arranged throughout the month. Not only for timing purposes, because of course, sometimes we want to be able to bring you a discussion for a show that comes in the middle of the month, but also some of our interviews have to be timed with premieres and promotional reasons and things like that. And also it makes it a ton more easy on me as a podcast editor. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. That's a big reason why this thing got started but so it will hopefully make things more regular for folks get more people engaged in the podcast and also give you something to look forward to every week all right sounds good but if you need to skip around for certain topics that you're interested in or to avoid spoilers here are the time codes for today's discussions scariest monsters 341 charmed 1842 showing adventures of sabrina 4126 castlevania interview
2: Sixty-three
1: forty-nine. all right now let's dive right in with our spoiler free discussion unless some of these shows you haven't seen god forbid but these are some classic shows that have very creepy monsters and we had to be very selective here and i had a lot of fun picking just the right ones
2: yeah and you know mike something we didn't really even talk about what actually constitutes a monster i I mean we are playing pretty fast and loose as (laughs) i think is okay with this topic but you know what is a monster i mean is godzilla a monster is uh, you know you have one from doctor who and i'll hold that in reserve you can talk (laughs) about it but uh, yeah
1: i think it's mostly just a supernatural creature but we did like you said we were a
2: little bit more broad uh with some of these but yeah so I'm going to go ahead and start, and this monster is from Season 2 of The X-Files, and it is Flukeman. It is from an episode entitled The Host, and what we see here is a genetically mutated creature that stalks its prey in the sewer system. Now, we've all heard about these mutant alligators, these <laughs> mutant reptiles that are in the sewers of New York, and Chris Carter and is certainly playing on that to a certain extent, but it's clearly part of the monster of the week format of X-Files, as opposed to the government conspiracy aspect that, you know, so many people really love. And I think that's one of the great things about the X-Files is that it was able to walk that line between those two areas just so well.
1: And I don't think any list of the best monsters in genre television would be complete without the fluke man, or at least something from the X-Files.
2: Yeah, I mean, think of fluke man as a humanoid worm Yeah, that basically eats people. Now, Scully speculates that the fluke man was inadvertently brought to the United States on a Russian freighter, a byproduct of the Chernobyl disaster. You know, we see it hiding in a portable toilet, which obviously is a horrific image on so many <laughs> levels. And then it gets sucked into a disposal tank that then leaves us wondering whether or not it's actually been contained. So if you haven't seen this episode of the X-Files and you're a horror fan, by all means, check it out. It is a perfect standalone. You don't need to know any mythology for X-Files to enjoy it.
1: Yeah. And that's the great thing about this list is that a lot of these are standalone episodes. But also, you know, it's not necessarily horror Like, we're doing this because of Halloween being last night as we're recording this on November 1st. But a lot of these are just supernatural scary things, not necessarily horror, where it's like gore and, you know, serial killer type stuff that you might qualify. So, mine actually is in that category that I'm going to start off with. And I'm going to start off with one that kind of is evocative of Fluke Man in regards to its mouth with all the rows of teeth and that round parasitic mouth that, that we're familiar with. And that's the changelings in supernatural. They appeared in season three, episode two of that show episode called the kids are all right, where the changelings were creatures that took over the souls of young children and then fed off of the mother's synovial fluid, pretending to be their kids. But of course they were very evil versions of those children, And the mothers were in no way deceived, but they basically were having to be food for their children once they were possessed by these changelings. And of course, the term comes from the idea that fairies would take babies and leave the fairy babies in their place. But this is a different idea where if you looked at these children in the mirror, they looked like these horrific lamprey like round mouthed creatures full of teeth And hollow eyes and slimy skin that almost seemed to be sloughing off of them. And yet, if you weren't looking in the mirror, they just looked perfectly normal, like the children that they were.
2: I just am disgusted by that description.
1: (laughs) But they also had, like, super strength and, and were only vulnerable to fire. I mean, just creepy kids. You know, you have to put something in that category
2: on this list. Oh, yeah. And Wayne always says, creepy kids are the worst, <laughs> yes, <laughs> or the best, depend depending on how you're looking at it. So. That's right. All right, now my second monster for this list comes from a series entitled Primeval uh, that Wayne and I happen to be covering on Sci Fi TV rewatch the the past month or so, and it is the future monster. I, I don't think it actually has a name. Uh, if you know Primeval, you understand that a number of anomalies or portals have opened up leading back to Earth's distant past during the time of dinosaurs. This is the British version you're talking about, right? The British version. And now we learn that there is a portal or portals to the future. So despite the fact that we've been working to prevent and contain and send back all of these dinosaurs from millions of years ago that have – made their way into uh, 2007, uh, which is when the series was running at that time. Uh, Now we've got to deal with this beast from the future. Visually, it reminds me of the creature in Alien, which, again, is just one of the most horrifying images I, I think I can remember from science fiction because we don't really think of Alien as horror. I mean, do you?
1: No. Well, that's the funny thing. You sometimes see it in horror lists, but yeah, technically it's not, but it's just so scary.
2: Yeah. So here this beast, it also possesses intelligence, incredible speed, cunning, immense power. And what they finally recognize is that if they let it loose in the past, because clearly they don't want to let it stay in the present it's capable of wiping out entire species, potentially changing the timeline.
1: Yeah. That sounds like something you would want to avoid, but how do you get it back to the future? It came from, I haven't seen that particular episode. So that sounds pretty cool. All right. Well, my next one is going to come from Buffy, the vampire slayer. And I think if you ask just about anybody, what's the scariest monster you can think of from all of the run of Buffy, the vampire slayer, I think, Everyone's top five would contain The Gentleman from the wonderful, wonderful episode Hush that not only are The Gentleman one of the scariest monsters in Buffy, but Hush is one of the best episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. In fact, it was the only one nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Writing in a Drama Series. So that tells you something.
2: Yeah. And if you know the episode, you almost are shocked that the voters had the foresight to recognize what this episode was all about and on so many levels why it's so great
1: oh yeah because yeah that's true because buffy kind of achieved classic status later in life and was maybe perhaps a little bit misunderstood at its time by anyone other than its fans but this episode in general had such an innovative structure because of the fact that no one could speak for a good portion of the episodes so that they all had to sort of speak in, in sign, but it wouldn't have been as as effective without the creepy grins of the gentlemen, not only their calm demeanor as they went about the town floating around, but that made them scary as well, but also just distinguished and scary at the same time. And interesting. I just noticed in my research, Hush is also the episode that introduces Tara Willow's girlfriend who is about to speak in support of Willow when she first goes to the campus Wiccan group and then finds out that they don't actually, they're not actually witches and they don't actually talk about spells. (laughs) And Tara is intimidated into silence before she can support Willow. And I think it's kind of cool that silence becomes a thematic thing in that sense, not just because of the powers that the gentlemen wield.
2: Yeah. Now, as you know, I came to Buffy late, um, midway through season five at this point. So I have seen Hush and you get over very quickly the fact that nobody's talking.
1: Yeah, it's great. One of my favorite moments of all time from uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, because Anya is my favorite character, is when Buffy is drawing all these gruesome pictures on the overhead projector and Anya is just joyfully eating popcorn <laughs> while she's watching her do that. <laughs>
2: All right, Mike. Well, my third character comes from a show that I'm currently reviewing for Den of Geek, and that is Van Helsing. And the character is Sam, who's portrayed by Christopher Heyerdahl, who is one of those actors that you might not be able to place some. But if we show you his picture, oh, yeah, I know that guy. He's been in everything. <laughs> yeah,
1: for sure. And this is one of those things, too, that now we're going to get into your example and my example that are they really monsters by the strict definition or are they not? But I think vampires qualify.
2: (laughs) Well, and the interesting thing about Sam is he was a monster even before he was turned into a vampire. As a child, he deliberately blinds his father, who then has him locked up in a juvenile facility. And the father makes the mistake of taunting his son. And and as we know from so many shows, Game of Thrones has one of the most gruesome examples. Taunting rarely ends well for the taunter. (laughs) Yes. Sam... Bites off his father's index finger as he's wagging it at him and then spits it on the ground. Now, early in the series, Van Helsing, that is dead bodies with a finger missing, keep turning up. And eventually, Sam is revealed as the killer. This is before he's turned into a vampire Ah. around his neck. He wears a necklace made up of the fingers of his victims. And once he becomes vampire and he has a protege that he's trying to, to teach his ways, he views torture as a form of play and enjoys prolonging his feeding from human victims. So, I mean, he is just visually a monster. There's no way anybody can look at Sam and not associate monster. And then once you learn his backstory that he was a monster as a human being – arguably he's worse now as a vampire but that's a close call
1: isn't he the one that couldn't speak at the beginning i haven't seen a ton of van helsing but
2: well he's deaf oh deaf. so that's what <laughs> so he can speak but as uh, somebody that did hear at one time he still can speak but and he's pretty easy to understand as well so
1: yeah very cool and my borderline monster that's at the end of my list here is an alien from Doctor Who, but I still think it's very creepy uh, enough to qualify. And that's The Silence, an alien that appeared in the two-part season six premiere. And if you remember that particular one, this was during the Matt Smith and Karen Gillan era. And The Silence had this ability to sort of make you forget your encounter with them as soon as you looked away. So it was kind of like The Weeping Angels, which of course would be the... Obvious choice for a lot of people on this list. Weeping angels would, would probably um, be on there. I just didn't want to go with that obvious choice. And uh, the weeping angels could only move when you looked away. <laughs> the silence makes you forget that you even saw them as soon as you look away. And in separate interviews, I found Matt Smith called the silence, the scariest monster in the show's history. And Karen Gillan said that the silence could rival the weeping angels in terms of scariness. And apparently they were modeled after Edward Munch's The Scream and kind of like a faceless or, or difficult to define looking face and then that oblong pear shaped head. And very creepy looking, but also the powers themselves made made them very creepy as well.
2: Yeah, if you don't know Monk's painting the scream, just just Google the scream and I'm sure it'll come up. It's a really powerful painting and in association with the silence, as you point out, just really is frightening. And, you know, you mentioned the weeping angels, which we'll have on our honorable mention list as the 10th doctor, David Tennant, says the only psychopaths in the universe to kill you nicely. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then how can we forget the Daleks? exterminate well well, yeah but see that now there i think you do cross into
1: non-monster territory i know know. but uh yeah there was a bunch of them there's some shows that get covered by den of geek uh such as Stand against evil that has a list that's up right now because Stand against evil is in its third season right now and being covered on the site and that has a great uh list of one-off monsters monsters of the week if you will and I was looking through the list that Daniel Curland put up there and Murgatroyd, the pot pig almost made my list. So I give that an honorable mention, but we also had some listener contributions. We had one from Richard on Twitter who brought up Eugene Tombs from X-Files. In fact, Mike Gorham also brought that one up along with Fluke Monster. And I think those would probably be everyone's top two from the X-Files, except I think Christopher Bork also brought up the Peacock family which is in home.
2: <laughs> well, uh, right. Uh, really the only episode that they chose not to rebroadcast.
1: Yeah. Cause it was too scary, too gruesome. But Christopher also brought up the weeping angels, of course, and the gentlemen. So we were on the same wavelength there. Taltos brought up the Reavers from Firefly, which I thought was a great choice, even though they're aliens, like uh, one of my choices was. And then Maria and Christopher also mentioned a few movie monsters. Uh, since they're not TV, I won't bring them up, but yeah, there's a lot of scary movie monsters out there as well, but TV monsters are a little bit more fun to hunt for. <laughs> but keeping with the Halloween theme, we're going to dive right in with our show topics, and they each involve witches. So this will be an interesting discussion, not only from how did we enjoy the shows, but also how did they compare to each other?
2: Yeah. Well, Mike, I know you're reticent to do it, so I'll go ahead and do it and let everybody know we're done with time travel. We're done with space sci-fi you know no more killjoys no more the expanse we are witch fans (laughs) i wouldn't go that far (laughs) all right maybe not but you you know i mean as critics because that's obviously what we do i I think we both agree that when you judge a show you have to judge it for what it is and not what we think it should be
1: right exactly
2: and i think we both entered charmed and Sabrina with a little trepidation because, as you said, it's out of our wheelhouse. So for Charmed, which is a reboot of the original Charmed uh, with Alyssa Milano and I forget who the other ones were, (laughs) but I never saw even one minute of the original Charmed. So I have no idea. I'm not going to compare it to that in any way, shape or form.
1: Well, in in that sense, I think a lot of critics of this show, they went after some of the portrayals of feminism and things like that in the show, but they also did a little bit too much comparing to the original, which I don't think is fair. I think it should be judged on no. its own merits.
2: Yep. So charmed debuted on October 14th, 2018 on the CW. And it, as I said, is a reboot of the WB series that ran for eight seasons between 1998 and 2008. So the show's premise, it, it opens up the first episode, the girl's mother dies in a mysterious fall out a window after invoking some sort of spell or chance. We obviously get the idea that she is a witch. And we also see that there's some sort of an evil presence. Uh, At first I thought it was a flock of bats, but now I believe it's crows or ravens or something. Yeah. But just birds and flying things in general are, are creepy. (laughs) And we learn that, Their mother bound their powers as baby. Now, when I say they, at this point, we're talking about the two sisters that live in this house with their mother. Right. So what we come to find out is in this early scene, she's in the process of of unbinding their power. So the girls don't know the powers that they have.
1: Right. Yeah. And this is a little bit of a departure from the original that I will mention just because I think this is done well as a origin story of sorts.
2: Yeah. Now they're given their mother's spell book and I, I don't know about you. I, you know, obviously you're a huge Buffy fan as well. Spell books are, they are a requirement for these yeah. kinds of shows.
1: Yeah. It's almost like you have to look up the demon
2: of the week to see how to defeat him. Just like in Buffy. <laughs> right. So, not to put a lot of pressure on them, once they start to learn who and what they are, they're told that they are witches who are destined to save the world from impending doom. Okay, not not like uh, putting a little pressure on there.
1: <laughs> yeah, no pressure.
2: They are the charmed ones. And we learn that Harry, a white lighter, is going to be their advisor. And as soon as we meet Harry, I mean, again, if you've seen Buffy, you can't help... But think about Giles.
1: Yeah, I thought of that. And I also the actor is Frank Frank on The Man in the High Castle. And that, that kind of threw me off a little bit as well.
2: <laughs> right. Now, we also learned, though, that there's a third sister that the two of them know nothing about. She shows up out of the blue. She had seen a photograph of her with her mother in front of a house. She, she's a child. So she basically does the legwork, tracks it down, knocks on the door. I think I'm your sister. And and of course, the two are, yeah, whatever. (laughs) But it doesn't take long to figure out that they really are sisters. And this whole idea of the power of three is going to be what's going to allow them to save the world from this impending doom. And interestingly, one of the first decisions they make is that, Any decision we make is majority rules. Well, obviously, two to one. And one of the first conflicts we we see is is thinking that the two younger ones, because the one that just discovered that she has sisters is a little bit older. Yeah, I I think she says she's 28.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So she is going to be the one that would be more obviously left out of some of the decisions.
2: All right. Now they're waiting for the third of three signs of the coming apocalypse. And and in addition to saving the world from doom, they still don't know who killed their mother. And they're a little unsure about Harry and they pull out the Ouija board that they have in the house and it spells don't trust Harry. They, they assume they've connected with their mother in the afterlife And given everything they've seen, they've seen no reason to not believe this message that they assume is coming from their mother. So immediately there's this wall that goes up about Harry and, and anything he does.
1: That was a nice little ending, twist ending of sorts for the first episode. And although it led in a different direction, it was kind of a nice little touch to make you realize that, oh, we might have to watch more carefully what we're dealing with here uh, because the Ouija board being pulled out was just kind of an offhanded maneuver to begin with and for it to produce something. So shocking was kind of a cool way to put us on our guard. Yeah.
2: Now let's go ahead and talk about the three sisters for a moment. Maggie Vera might be my favorite of the three. She wants to pledge the Kappa sorority. So amidst all of this, chaos that's going on she's constantly checking her phone checking her text messages to make sure that she's still in the running to be accepted into the kappa sorority and i i just love the contrast between what she needs to do as a witch and arguably a savior of mankind and (laughs) trying to be accepted into the sorority yeah i like the She didn't put
1: any exclamation points on her response to my Instagram.
2: (laughs) Well, and she says, well, if I have to be a witch, I still want to have a life. Exactly. And who can blame her? Right. Now, her power is that she can hear what others are thinking. So I don't know. And maybe you can help me out here. I'm not sure if it's clear whether it's a power she can control and turn on and off or if it's just when she's around people she can hear what they're thinking
1: well it's by touch she does try to block it off with some gloves at one point that does not work so I think she does have some work to do on controlling her power but I think also and this is again just like in the original charmed the powers often have something to do with an insecurity that they themselves had she cares what people think therefore her power is to
2: hear what people think interesting little irony there right and you know she's got a boyfriend that she's broken up with but Uh, from her perspective they're broken up on good terms and and clearly he really likes her a lot and and we're not sure exactly what her thoughts are but obviously now her new life is going to impact that and you know i mentioned the sorority and one of the biggest kappa crises that she faces is the halloween party and eventually she tries to kind of split the difference. And actually, it was pretty clever. She offers up their house for the Kappa party because what it mainly can do is allow alcohol to be served at this party. But what was so great is that she conjures up a spell to help with the decorating. And as soon as she does that, we get a feeling it's not going to end well.
1: Fantasia, anyone?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And she does the same thing with costumes, which which again, uh, I thought was great, but we also understand it likely is going to come with a certain set of consequences, which of course it does in the end. And to bring everything to a close, they have to break the magic that they'd used on the party and on the costumes and It's just a really, really fun scene. And, you know, even before I go on further, it's just a really fun show. I'm just so surprised how much I enjoyed it.
1: Yeah. And and both of these shows actually have an episodic nature to them that you would think would be off-putting. But it's not. (laughs) It's actually just kind of fun to have a self-contained story. It's kind of lighthearted. So it's not the heavy stuff that we, we might be used to with some of our science fiction selections. And... It surprisingly works well. I'm not usually a fan of those
2: type of things, but these were good. Yeah. Now, her sister, Melanie Vera, is a full-blown feminist who can freeze time, which might be my favorite power of the oh, three. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> no question. And she's the one I mentioned is a graduate student and a teaching assistant. And her girlfriend, Nico, is a detective. Of course, because you got to have someone in the cast.
1: So that you can involve crime somehow.
2: (laughs) Well, right, and we know it's going to be a problem because the woman's a detective. She's going to ask questions. Things are going to happen that are not going to add up. And you know, we certainly see a number of instances where Melanie is really kind of upset that she has to hide the truth from her. And you know, there's that scene later on. Where she talks about the fact that she knew she was gay early on and her mother taught her to be proud of who and what she is and all of that. And she never had to hide. And, you know, I'll be darned if I'm going to hide now. And I guess I'm thinking like, well, what if you were a CIA agent or I mean, this is not the same.
1: Yeah, this is not personal pride here.
2: (laughs) Right. I get what she's trying to get across, but I I just don't see it in the same way.
1: Well, in fact, in this show in general, I have to say my only criticism of it is the way that it treats Melanie's feminism because it's almost as though it's being written by someone who really doesn't understand feminism at all because some of it comes across as very surfacey, Some of it comes across as kind of pandering in a way to an audience. And some of it comes Across as just totally wrong for her character, and she does a turnabout on some of her principles often in these first three episodes,
2: right? Whichever of those items you want to hold as true, and I agree with everything you just said. Overall, the show comes across fairly heavy handed, yeah, with the feminism, yes, <laughs> yes. So now, the other thing is Melanie. Is clearly the most impatient of the three. Yeah. To the point where Harry has to put a tracker on Melanie to alert him anytime she uses magic. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> and obviously, we get to the end, and and she's earned the right to have the tracker removed, and earned a little bit of trust. And the first three episodes really are about building that trust, because uh, Macy, the the third sister, I'll talk about in a moment has to earn the trust and has to learn to trust her new sisters. And then of course there's Harry thrown into the mix, but Macy Vaughn, who is the older sister, 28 years old. She just shows up out of the blue after seeing that picture of her as a baby in front of the sister's house. Her power is telekinesis. And how classic was that? That she first, well, of course she doesn't really realize what it is when she's in the bar with the guy that likes her a lot. And, She clearly likes him, too, but something goes flying across the bar. I guess it's a beer bottle or something. Yeah,
1: And the thing is, immediately you think that her power is the coolest, the most powerful. She's got a grip on it very early. And I think especially Maggie is feeling a little bit like she got the raw end of the deal power wise. But but yeah, Macy is kind of like the because she's the oldest. I feel like telekinesis kind of gives her the warrior
2: feel. Right. But she's going to have to cope with the fact that for a while she's the outsider because the two sisters have been together, you know, 20 plus years. I love the scene where she's moving into their mother's room. I assume there's really no other room for her. And obviously the two sisters take it the wrong way. And I love at the end when we have that scene where Macy comes in and. And she sees that the two of them have started cleaning it up as they tell her, we don't want you to have to live in a shrine to our mother.
1: Right. I thought that was a really great moment because in some sense at the beginning of the first episode and in the second episode, you almost felt like maybe they accelerated the sister bonding and the sarcastic wit that they were trading back and forth too early uh, because they hadn't really earned that yet. But the moment where she was moving into the mother's room, that really felt natural and what should have happened to help her bond
2: yeah and then the relationship with galvin or i guess it's really not even a relationship yet she works with him in the lab and that whole thing about why she has a difficult time accepting that she's attractive and as she says i have been a minority for so long and she goes through that thing about, you know, in the school, uh, I decided okay, I was gonna be the smart minority and I don't know how to be anything else. Again, you know, we know what she means, but I don't know. A little heavy handed with that. A, too. <laughs> a little heavy handed. So let me just talk a little bit about the story in episode two. So we see this cleaning woman in Macy's lab at the beginning of the episode, and there's this black blob that comes out of nowhere, enters her. She's thrown against a glass door cabinet, which was a pretty cool special effect, by the way. Yeah. They do a good job with the effects for a CW show. I have to say. Yeah. And then the blob leaves her escapes through a vent. So it's an image. It's a plot device that we've seen many times before and meanwhile maggie's got to spend some time at the hospital with the sorority because one of the girls from their college is in a coma and what we later learn is that this black blob this entity whatever it is has inhabited this young girl now we later come to find out that harry got in wiped the cleaning woman's memory of the demon attack but At this point, they're starting to realize, I think, what it is they're up against. I mean, they're Sam and Dean on, I guess, a lesser level at the beginning of their monster hunting days, if you will. And the other thing about Harry, they realize every time they mention his name, he appears.
1: Right. They think they're calling on him, so they don't want to do that when they're trying to discuss whether they should trust him or not.
2: (laughs) Right. So they start calling him among themselves Megan Markle so that he won't appear every time they mention his name. Yeah. Whenever
1: they bring it up, it, it definitely has a comedic effect on them trying to be serious and having that ridiculous nickname come up in the mix.
2: Right. All right. Well, Macy mixes up basically what she's calling a truth serum. And she's trying to get various people to imbibe it and try to learn who, the monster in this case really is. But of course, right away, we see there are two thermoses side by side. And we know right away they're going to get switched, which is, of course, what happens. And Nico, the detective, ends up with the thermos that's got the truth serum in it. She drinks it. I guess it's probably coffee. And suddenly <laughs> she's telling everybody what she really thinks about them, which which is pretty funny. But what they find is... That they still don't know whether to trust Harry or not. And what they think is that Harry killed their mother and that he wants to steal their powers. So they, at this point, don't trust Harry still. They need to find the prism of souls to trap Harry and we learn that there's this object that's hidden in a mirror in his office, and and uh, you know the way out of that maze was pretty darn cool, I, I, I must say. But finding the way out of the maze together seems to be an emerging theme of the show. We said the power of three at, at the at the start, and they realize that if they're going to be successful in what they're tasked to do, they are going to have to to work together.
1: Well, in fact, that's how they defeat the first cold demon that they think is the demon that killed their mother. But he kind of says, as he's dissolving away, they've banished that ice demon uh, that was hidden inside one of the professors or (laughs) one of the uh, people on campus. And he kind of says, you think I'm the one in charge of this little thing? Oh, you have no idea where this is headed. Kind of hinting at a much larger picture that, of course, we're just scratching the surface of here at the very beginning of the first season. Yeah.
2: And what we find is that this black goo is the primordial form of the harbinger. The arrival harkens the apocalypse and obviously preventing it now falls on their shoulder. So we, we get to the third episode and that's all that's aired to this point. And we've got a cold open that turns out to be a virtual simulation training session as the three unsuccessfully battle a demon. And, and that was a, a, a pretty cool visual But there is a governing council that oversees the witches, and it's clear right from the start that the three sisters' impatience is going to be an obstacle moving forward. And this is, again, something we saw in Buffy. The council was constantly over her head, over Giles' head, and her attitude was typically, well, screw them. (laughs) Yeah, I'm the slayer. I'm the one – Putting my life on the line. And right away, we see that's pretty much going to be their approach as well. So as I mentioned earlier, the vessel turns out to be Angela Wu, who's this college student that's in the coma in the hospital. I don't know if she's actually a member of the sorority or not, but the sorority girls are always going there. I think they're going there to do their community service. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Right. But Mel goes and she's got the cookies that have the truth serum in them. And and she's trying to get Angela to eat one of them. And Angela's, you know, rebuffing it. And and of course, Mel doesn't want to push too hard. And finally, she makes up some sort of a story. She takes a bite of the cookie. And we're thinking like, okay, well, you know, but then of course, as soon as Mel leaves, Angela spits the cookie out. And I mentioned the party earlier And Maggie suggests, well, why don't we party here? We can test everybody in this closed proximity. Okay, good idea. And in the midst of the party, Nico gets a call. Three more dead bodies have turned up on campus. So, you know, she's got to leave. Obviously, we know these are related. And then we learn that the demon is hunting virgins. Macy admits that she's a virgin, cuts her hand, and they leave a trail of her blood And at the end, the Angela demon's not dead. Harry's got her chained in the attic until the elders can arrive and decide what to do. Constant supervisions required. And we're left with that episode wondering if the girls are going to not watch Angela, the monster, Angela, the demon, and something bad is going to happen. What you can
1: tell is that each of the episodes kind of ups the stakes a little bit, as they should. and airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host i think there is a very good logical progression to the widening scope of the show
2: yeah but you know as i said it's a lot of fun the acting is good the the visuals are good it's uh, you know, it's not real scary. It's kind of creepy. Uh, I think Sabrina makes me consider Buffy a little more than than Charmed, perhaps just because it's Sabrina alone, as opposed to the fact that the girls have each other. But, uh, you know, check it out. I, I, I think you might be pleasantly surprised.
1: It's funny how we're drawing comparisons to Buffy, considering she's not a witch, although she does have Willow <laughs> in the mix as well. But But yeah, there are some very obvious comparisons to that earlier show and they're recontextualizing it for the modern age and sometimes successfully, sometimes not. I do give Chilling Adventures of Sabrina a little bit more, um, I put that a little bit higher on the scale of likelihood to be renewed, (laughs) but I did enjoy charmed for it was probably won't necessarily keep watching it, but I did enjoy it for the purposes of discussing it on the podcast. But it probably is no coincidence that both of these shows came out in October to the same month as Halloween because it definitely fits with the the mood of the month and what everyone's thinking about. And Chilling Adventures of Sabrina is so well-timed with its October 26th drop date on Netflix, 10 episodes of Chilling Fun. And I found this interesting that when it was first announced and also in just hearing through the grapevine about Riverdale, being kind of a scary show too. I'm like, is this the Archie that I remember? And I didn't really know the backstory. Did you know why this was uh, (laughs) being treated as a supernatural slash horror concept,
2: Dave? Well, I didn't, Uh, I did hear the Riverdale reference in uh, one of these episodes.
1: Right. And I was just like, I was not aware that this was a thing, you know, horror versions of Archie, but Sabrina, the teenage witch, just to go back into its origins a little bit, It was a playful look at a high school femme fatale in the 1960s, and she could cast charms and hexes, trying to be good as her witch family encouraged her to be mischievous. And she was part of the Archie Comics imprint. She even had some interaction with Archie and Jughead and the gang. And she was originally envisioned as a one-off, but instead became very popular and got her own title that lasted into the early 80s. So obviously there was the TV show in the nineties with Melissa Joan Hart based on that comic. And that was more of a comedy as well, lighthearted in nature. But in 2013, I found out a more mature storyline called afterlife with Archie brought Archie and Jughead and the gang into a more mature alternate history version of Riverdale. And Sabrina was in issue number six of that comic And obviously was much more suited to this darker version of Riverdale. And so the teenage witch got her own new title called The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina in 2014. And that's where these TV shows are coming from. Riverdale, of course, is on the CW and Chilling Adventures of Sabrina is on Netflix. Stars Kiernan Shipka of Mad Men in the lead role And this version sticks with the idea that Sabrina is half human on her mom's side and half witch on her father's side, which was emphasized in the 2014 comic. But one of the things that I noticed throughout my note taking during watching this series is that there are a series of core mysteries, some of which get answered and addressed, and some of which are left hanging for future seasons, which I think is very well done. But one of the core mysteries is the death of her parents when she was an infant, supposedly in a plane crash. But at some point there's a dream that she has where there are two babies, one with hooves. And that was kind of strange to see. And she's been brought up in, in the absence of her parents by her witchy aunts, Hilda and Zelda in Greendale, which I guess is near Riverdale. And they're basically preparing for her dark baptism On her 16th birthday, on Halloween, during a lunar eclipse, it's like everything's coming together for this perfect night, this perfect coming of age, where she will sign her name in the Dark Lord's book. And even just that, to begin with, was like, man, they're going full on Satan here, satanic rituals.
2: Oh, right. And the little bit that we've seen of her at that point leads us to question whether or not this young girl who, you know, I mean, she... Seems like she would be on the cheerleading squad, debate team, involved in school. Is she going to sign her name in the Book of the Dark Lord?
1: Yeah, and she's a bit blasé about it. She's kind of reluctant, but she's just kind of treating it like any, you know, teenage angst topic might be. And so, yeah, it's it's very interesting. I was just kind of surprised to find that they were going in this direction rather than like the Wiccans that you might see, you know, worshiping an earth mother, like you might see in charmed here. We have actual evil, if you will, although I guess it depends on your perspective treatment of a religion. So very interesting take on the central premise for the show. But other than that, it follows the same structure as charmed and of Buffy, the vampire slayer. Like we said, they have, they have, uh, a number of great characters that I want to discuss up front here. First of all, of course, there are her friends at Baxter High, Roz and Susie. And the latter is being bullied for being asexual or at least non-binary. And I think this was one of the first characters that I've seen that was treated this way. In fact, the actress herself is non-binary. I'm not even sure I should call it actress in that sense. But Roz, the other character also starts a feminist club with Sabrina's help because of Susie being bullied. And in fact, they call the club the women's intersectional creative cultural association, which happens to spell out Wicca, which I think was interesting considering they don't know that Sabrina is a witch. And yet they still went that particular route. And again, I don't know that the feminism is, really treated in a way that integrates it well into the storyline, just like in charmed. I feel like it kind of stuck out a little bit, but it does fit maybe a little bit better motivated by the bullying that's going on from the football team. Maybe a little bit cliche in that sense, but definitely something that needed to be addressed. And I thought this was a nice creative way to do it.
2: Right. And you get the impression they had no idea that it was going to spell out Wicca. <laughs> yeah. Just a nice little play on words there. Right. And and they do that a lot in the show, which is really a lot of fun as well.
1: Yeah. Well, especially with the names, which I'll talk yeah. about in a minute. But um, Harvey Kinkle, the boyfriend of Sabrina, straight out of the comics, played by Ross Lynch, famous for his portrayal of Austin in Austin and Allie on the Disney Channel. But he's told everything by Sabrina, which I love the fact that there was a moment early in the series where she decided, I need to tell him about Everything, the dark baptism, me being a witch, everything, because why wouldn't you do that? You know, I like when they don't keep secrets all the time. Of course, then she finds out that it has very dire consequences and she wipes his memory. But I like that they did that. And Harvey is not just arm candy. You know, he's got a backstory as well. Specifically, his father is the foreman of the mines, which In this town is a big business, but it also happens to be probably the passage to hell that makes Glendale, you know, hooked into this um, coven so strongly. And Harvey is expected to work in the mines like his brother, Tommy, but he's having trouble because as a child, he was playing hide and seek and he spotted the dark Lord and was traumatized by the goat headed figure that we see several times hinted at throughout the 10 episodes.
2: Right. And the fact that we don't know whether their father is just a jerk or if he's got some connection to yeah, the Dark Lord. <laughs> exactly.
1: So and, and there's some things that will be addressed in later episodes that I'm not going to mention. Like I said, we're only talking about the first three episodes here, but it's nice that they have so many things that they can set up in just these first three episodes, which center around Sabrina's reluctance to go through her dark baptism. One of the my favorite characters that's introduced is miss Wardwell who is wonderfully played by Michelle Gomez, who of course viewers may recognize if you're a doctor who fan, that's none other than the master Missy. (laughs) And I think she does a wonderful Missy like portrayal of this character as well. Yeah. And she's a teacher at Baxter high. Well, at least she initially is before she's taken over by a demon who becomes the real character that we know. And the demon is there in place to make sure that Sabrina makes it to her dark baptism and her foil, you might say, or perhaps her companion in the mission to pay attention to what Sabrina's up to is high priest Faustus Blackwood played by Richard Coyle, who interesting. We, we talked about hard Sun in this podcast and that got uh, canceled of course, but his character's name was Blackwood in that show too, which I thought was interesting. And then, um, Blackwood is tasked similarly to make sure that Sabrina gets to the Academy of Unseen Arts, which is kind of like the Hogwarts of this show and the central mystery surrounding these two and their mission is why the heck does Sabrina warrant such specific attention? You get the sense that the orders are coming from the Dark Lord himself, but how much do these guys even know about why they're watching this girl so closely? has something to do with the fact that she's half witch but but I don't know how much they know
2: well and it also seems as the series progresses uh, it's, there's something about her parents her father in particular that really makes her more important than a half witch half human would ordinarily be exactly and and it's not common we should say that
1: a witch would marry a human and there was some special dispensation that comes up in one of the later episodes. But to go on with the characters, I really, really enjoyed Ambrose, who was a Spellman cousin who is on house arrest in the same house that Zelda and Hilda and Sabrina live in. And the question is for quite some time, why? (laughs) What did he do? And I love that they hold on to that. They keep referencing it as though we're supposed to know. And you're like, did I miss something? But then you realize, no, this is something that, we're hoping will get revealed. And of course it does during the course. This is one of the mysteries that does actually get answered in the course of the 10 episodes, but he helps Sabrina in a number of different ways, initially to kind of scare the principal into letting them start the feminist club <laughs> by using a spider spell. Cause he's deathly afraid of spiders, but he's also the one that suggests that she use this malum malice apple to determine what she should do with regard to her dark baptism And his job there at the Spellman Mortuary, which is what her aunts do for a living, he's the embalmer. And I just think that's a nice little way to frame his character. He does have his own little subplot in which a boy, Connor, comes in with stab wounds. And they find out that this young boy is a warlock himself, but for some reason his parents are mortals. He must have been adopted. Why was he killed? Who killed him? And an old boyfriend of the boy, Connor, shows up and Ambrose has a dalliance with him as well, but his house arrest creates difficulties with that as well. So just love the fact that he's able to have his own storyline, but also
2: kind of be a confidant for Sabrina. Okay. One quick question. What time period are we in? Because if you go by the automobiles, they seem to be like late seventies, early eighties, right? but Ambrose always has a laptop.
1: Yeah, it's purposely ambiguous and I really, really enjoy that because yeah, you're right. The fashions are dated and the automobiles as well. Like you're kind of in a town that's out of time in a sense, but it is modern time. So that, that's a really cool effect. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. Then of course the two ants themselves are wonderfully portrayed. Uh, Zelda's Miranda Otto, who I will always think of as Aowen from the Lord of the Rings, two towers. And of course, Hilda is played wonderfully by Lucy Davis who goes back to the British version of the office, of course, but more recently has made a name for herself as Edda in wonder woman did, a, had a great character in that movie. And those two clearly know more than what they're saying about Sabrina's parents death, but they won't say anything. And we're wondering, wondering what the heck is it? It's not just a plane crash. What is it that took out her parents? And another interesting dynamic, because they're always at each other's throats is that Zelda occasionally will kill Hilda (laughs) for indulging Sabrina's non-witch tendencies. But then Hilda just resurrects herself. And I find that very, it's like it doesn't take away the stakes in any way. It still is extremely brutal and it contributes to this uh, oppressive dynamic that they have.
2: Oh, that was one of the great lines when uh, Sabrina comes home. Where's Aunt Hilda? She was annoying. I killed her and buried her in the yard. (laughs) Yeah. She doesn't lie or equivocate.
1: And uh, Hilda even mentions at one point, just as she's tucking in Sabrina, you know, sometimes I fantasize about burning the whole woods to the ground. And of course, the woods are central to the coven and their operations. So <laughs> something definitely. Is. And then, of course, there's the weird sisters. And it's por- it's Prudence, Dorcas and the Agatha. But really, Prudence is the only one that has her own distinct personality played by Tati Gabrielle, who was Gaia in The Hundred. Thank you. A wonderful character there. <laughs> now I know where I know her from. <laughs> there you go. And initially Prudence and her sisters, quote unquote, curse Sabrina because she's a half breed and they don't want her at Hogwarts. I mean, <laughs> the Academy of unseen arts, but then they actually help her lure some football players who are bullying Susie into the local mines and then charm them into making out with each other in their underwear So when they finally do get Sabrina to the Academy, Prudence is basically the Draco Malfoy of the bunch. (laughs) And she definitely has some hidden depths that come out in the course of the 10 episodes. But really, she's the mean girl, you might say, for Sabrina in the witch world. Now, the opening story, of course, is what we're focusing on in these first three episodes. And Sabrina is having doubts about her dark baptism, but needs to pick a familiar and a, a couple other things to prepare And the familiar choosing is one of my favorite parts of this first episode because you're waiting for Salem to show up the talking cat that was so popular in the 1990s sitcom. But of course it takes a little different tack here, but I like the fact that witches normally pick a prefab servitude goblin in animal form to be their familiar. But Sabrina goes about it a different way. She decides to go out into the woods and ask for a volunteer among the demon kind to be her familiar. And you know that's going to be something that makes her familiar much more special, much more powerful, much more bonded to her because it's not a slave. It's a relationship of mutual benefit.
2: Yeah, and the name Salem, again, (laughs) as you mentioned earlier. it
1: chooses because they think it's kind of cheesy, but yeah, it does fit. And unlike in the 90s show, the cat does not talk with a human voice, but Sabrina does have several conversations with it. And I did mention that Ambrose suggests eating a Malamalus to help her decide. And that's a scene that kind of threw me off a little bit because it was scary. She was going through the pumpkin patch, the hay maze to get to the oldest tree to eat the apple that would guide her along the way. But she gets attacked by a scarecrow, which is basically Wardwell trying to keep her from the apple so that she won't have doubts about her dark baptism But it's ineffective, mainly because Salem has joined her at that point and in in its more demonic form uh, attacks the scarecrow and takes it out. But Serena never really questions where that scarecrow came from. And that kind of bothered me a little bit. She just kind of was like, okay, go about my business and eat my apple. And the apple shows her a vision of the 13 witches that were hanged in 1692 in Glendale because they liken Glendale to kind of. The same as Salem, Massachusetts. And she has this horrific vision, which doesn't fit with what she's expecting. And uh, when she's talking with the Weird Sisters at one point, they even say that witches really are trading their freedom in exchange for power. And that's not really something that Sabrina's keen on doing.
2: Well, yeah, you wonder what kind of vision she had of the Dark Lord. I mean, has she been watching Lucifer Morningstar and <laughs> on Fox? I mean, what
1: did she think exactly?
2: And in fact, when
1: Father Blackwood makes his first appearance in the show, he's there to answer all her questions, and she seems to have more questions than you would think a sixteen-year-old that's been brought up in the Church of Night would have. <laughs> you know, but he persuades her that, oh no, we're not evil. Witches are just people who serve. Lucifer, the fallen angel, and they're exempt from hell's punishments. It it might be that they would go to hell, but they'll live there like Kings. And he tells her all this about her parents' death being an accident. And he welcomes her questions. Questioning is good and tells her that free choice is the bedrock upon which their church is built. But of course, when Sabrina makes it to her dark baptism, she finds that that is far from the truth as Blackwood presides immediately tells her to disrobe. She's chosen this great white wedding dress that turns black in a very magnificent fashion. And then she ends up in her slip for the final ceremony. And you immediately get the sense that this is not really about free will. And she must forsake all and agree to do the dark Lord's bidding by signing her name in the book.
2: Yeah. And I can't say I was surprised that she doesn't sign, but no, (laughs) I will say dope that I am. I guess I started believing father Blackwood when he was, you know, giving her the hard sell. Exactly.
1: You, You wanted to believe it just like she wanted to believe it, but because she has this vision with the apple and again, right here before she signs her name in the book of these hanged women, these 13 witches, she, doesn't want to do it. She said, you said I would have free will and all of the witches of the coven, both alive and dead are gathered in this clearing in the woods. And she sees her parents among the dead who tell her to run. And so she wants to believe that her parents are trying to protect her from signing her name. And that sets off a lot of the conflict that goes throughout the season. And episode three is what, starts to make me wonder as I'm watching it. Okay. Now we're getting into more episodic content as we deal with the witch's court where Sabrina is being sued along with her aunts that she has to sign her name in the book because she's been promised. And this is a breach of promise that she's done by leaving the dark baptism. And so we have this Daniel Webster plot that comes out and As you watch the episodes four, episodes five, episode six, you realize that there are going to be, you know, monsters of the week, demons of the week or problems of the week to solve. And I wasn't sure how I I felt about that, but it actually works out really well as it does in charmed. Don't you think?
2: Oh, I, I absolutely. And, and, you know, of course, once the lawyer, Daniel Webster enters the mix It just I I really enjoyed the way that unfolded. I mean, it made sense. You know, it it wasn't this deus ex machina ending that absolves her of, you know, any guilt in this case. And I love the fact that in the witch courts, you're guilty until proven innocent.
1: Right. And they keep saying your dishonors and, you know, disorder in the court. You know, they keep using the opposite of what you would normally hear. But, yeah, Daniel Webster as a lawyer and, of course, the Daniel Webster character and historical figure, probably a juxtaposition of those two. (laughs) And um, he was somehow involved with Sabrina's father. I'm still waiting to see how that plays out. But he made a deal with the devil to be a great lawyer, but was only able to exonerate horrible people. That was his curse. So he agrees to help Sabrina. And it comes out that Sabrina's father put her name in the book when she was like three days old or something. And that was part of his compromise in order to marry her mother, which I found a little bit strange because, okay, well, isn't that the cart before the horse? Did was Sabrina born before they were married? Or I am not Sure. How that worked, but it doesn't matter because her mother prepared for this eventuality and she with Hilda's help. Interestingly, already had Sabrina baptized in the Catholic church. And so she can't, be in breach of promise because she was promised to another religion first. And Hilda is excommunicated for this thing that she did, but Sabrina escapes punishment and the rapid aging that her aunts were going through until a verdict was reached was avoided as well. But even this, it's a, it's a plot that's self-contained in episode three, but Hilda's excommunication comes into play. The history of Sabrina's parents comes into play. And even the motivation of Blackwood, for doing all this comes into play. So it's a really great setup that if you wait for the payoff, it really does happen. And even those things that don't pay off throughout the 10 episodes of season one, you can tell they're going to bring them in, in future seasons. And then they're planning for that exact thing. So really intricate, well-laid groundwork for a great series that I think is going to last probably a little longer than charmed. I would guess.
2: Yeah. Although you never know with Netflix these days,
1: It must be a time for witches in this particular time of year. And of course, also coming out in October, I'm sure is no mistake. And that is Castlevania season two, a show that kind of slipped under our radar until we had the opportunity to interview Adi Shankar. And then we found out that, Oh, season one has already happened, but it's only four episodes. We can
2: do that. (laughs) And so we, just devoured those episodes, right, Dave? Yeah, well, only 22 minutes each. I mean, really, knock them out in one sitting. And and they're really good. I Again, it's not something I usually watch, but I couldn't stop. Kept going.
1: Yeah. So we haven't discussed Castlevania on this show, but maybe we will in a future season. And in this case, we'll address the show with our interview segment. And Adi Shankar has a very diverse portfolio as a writer and director, but he actually came to our attention And apparently the attention of Netflix, as you'll hear in this interview, through his work with his production company, Bootleg Universe, which produced low budget, but amazingly faithful, unauthorized adaptations of everyone's favorite comic book, anime and video game characters. Almost to the point where people were saying, hey, these are better than the original. (laughs) And he's recently been dubbed. I'm so excited by this to helm an adaptation of Legend of Zelda. This news just came out. After we interviewed him, I wish we had gotten a chance to, to ask him about it, but he's here to talk to us about Castlevania, the animated adaptation of the classic video game series on Netflix, which just released its second season also on October 26th, just like Sabrina continuing with our creepy Halloween theme. Let's talk about Dracula and Castlevania's vampire hunters with Adi Shankar. We're here with Adi Shankar, who is the showrunner for Castlevania, which is entering its second season on Netflix. Thanks so much for joining us, Adi.
0: Thank you both for uh, for having me on your wonderful show. <laughs> All
2: right, well, let's get right to it. I mean, getting your vision of an animated Castlevania on the screen has been a pretty long process. Uh, you initially turned down an offer to direct a live action adaptation of the video game because what the studio proposed and what you saw weren't the same. So can you walk us through what happened to change your mind to ultimately take control of this Netflix production?
0: Well, these were two completely different scenarios, you know, like the same people were not involved. Like the live action thing was one crew of people. And then this was completely separate, but you know, the elevator summary of what happened here was uh, in 2015, uh, I was getting ready to, know, leave Hollywood. I wanted to go to graduate school, or you know, explore other things with my life. And I guess the last thing I wanted to to, to put out there was this Power Rangers. Well, it was was uh, how I interpreted the Power Rangers. So I ended up putting out this ten plus minute short film that reimagined the the Power Rangers as a hard R franchise, where the original Rangers were now in their forties and dealing with like severe PTSD. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the short or
1: we are huge fans of that.
0: <laughs> so after that, uh, Netflix reached out to me via Twitter, called me in for a meeting. And, uh, and you know, I guess what came with that was, was this offer to make whatever I wanted. <laughs> and how I wanted to do it with minimal to no interference and creative control and whatnot. And that kind of spawned Castlevania as an anime I and mean, it was it was like it was like very like you know it was very specific about like it has to look like this it has to have this vibe the tone like the hype, you know the about and yeah that kind of led to this show that now exists
1: now the first season is essentially a prologue that's designed to bring Trevor Sifa and Alucard together to fight Dracula in essence so what new settings and characters can we expect to see and meet in season two
0: well I mean I could say that you know there's um, there's a character from Curse of Darkness uh, called Hector who's in the show. Now, what I liked about Hector was I liked the idea of using someone who is not a Belmont. He's not part of the Belmont family, but he's he's also a human who who has some magic abilities and 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 also actually Hector was is the star of his own game. So Curse of Darkness stars Hector. Um, there's also a character named Isaac in the show. Um, Victor and Isaac are kind of—I uh, don't want to say yin and yang, but they're—they're they're together a lot in the—in the—in the games. Their they're, their mythologies intersect in multiple ways, and yeah, we really just kind of open up the world of Dracula.
2: Okay, well, you know, certainly one character we can talk about is Trevor and amidst all the horror that's taking place on the screen all around him I mean his irreverent attitude is his comments which lighten the mood for the audience I'm not so sure about you know the, the people on screen with him but what is it about Trevor Belmont that makes him so engaging and how much fun is it to write dialogue for him
0: um I mean you're gonna have to ask Warren Ellis about <laughs> had the fun in writing the dialogue for him Warren Ellis is our series writer and he's just so amazing so talented he was actually uh, a hero of mine you know before I even broke into this industry used to read his his comics his comic books
2: Well so do you have a traditional writer's room the way most live-action shows do so I,
0: I know it's not conventional I know everything about the way we make this show is unconventional and I, I, I purely know this from the fact that when we were putting it together, when we were, out the moment Netflix gave Kevin and I, Kevin being my partner on the show, the moment Netflix gave us the green light, uh, and we started assembling the team and the, and the pipeline and creating this production process, we were told that, Hey, this is very unconventional. Hey, this is not how it's normally done. Now that said, I haven't really been a part of a normal show. So I don't, you know, I can't compare it to anything. I can't say, well, you know, when I was on Battlestar Galactica, we did this, but (laughs) like my filmography is pretty much just unconventional thing after unconventional thing that had its own bizarre process.
1: Now, for those who might not be familiar with the video game upon which Castlevania is based, what elements of that original property did you try to preserve and which did you know you wanted to leave out? I know you took the name Curse of Darkness, of course.
0: Well, I definitely wanted to preserve the name. You know, I thought it was like super important to call it Castlevania. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just messing with you guys. I'm just messing with you guys. But <laughs> I mean, It would have been kind of funny if it had like a different title, you know, like, um, Whip Guy.
1: <laughs> the Journey of Trevor.
0: Right. Or Castle Fighter, Castle Warriors
1: were there any recognizable elements if you played the game that you would say oh that's that's the part that i played
0: oh yeah you know, like a lot of it most of it you know it's the show intentionally walks this fine line between being its own thing because it's really it's set in its own universe you know it's inspired by the, the game universe in the same way that the marvel cinematic universe is heavily influenced heavily inspired by the Marvel comics that came before it, especially the ultimate universe. But the movies are their own thing. You know, the characters are slightly different. The timeline is slightly altered. And that's very much the world in which Castlevania exists. It's, um, it's, it's its own thing, but I kind of lost my train of thought as I was, I was saying that I deep dived too much into Marvel. And then <laughs> I completely derailed, completely derailed my point. <laughs> Marvel has a way of doing that. All of a sudden, you know, you start thinking about rocket raccoon and Groot and the next thing you know. Yeah. You you just, yeah.
2: Well, you mentioned already uh, your bootleg universe and the one shot films, which are really well known in the genre fandom. And as Mike said, we're huge fans of those. Do you receive any pushback from the studios that own those properties? And, how do you choose subjects? I know, I know I've heard you say that, you know, a lot of these things are, you know, connections to your childhood, especially Power Rangers. But I mean, how do you choose the subjects that run the gamut from Power Rangers to Mr. Rogers? And do you have any in the pipeline that you can talk to us about?
0: I do have I do have some in the pipeline. Uh, I can't talk about them because I, I think part of the charm of them is is just not promoting them. They just kind of appear one day.
1: Yeah, Exactly.
0: You know, the moment, the moment <laughs> they were like, it's like the anti-promotion, um, the moment I start teasing them or doing that whole thing, then it's like, how different is it than a corporate product? It's just things that, you know, and in terms of picking them, picking subjects, it really just boils down to things that, again, I, and I, it sounds super cliche, um, but it's things that, that I connected with things that influenced me, you know, um, my perspective, on a lot of these franchises is a slightly skewed one because growing up internationally and completely outside of the United States, growing up not only just outside of the United States, but, but outside of like Western culture. So I was, I was engaging with a lot of these brands and these franchises in a vacuum. Like I didn't know that other people even like these things. So it's like I was deep diving into the mythology of these things without having anyone to talk to or verify the, the mythology or, or to have a back and forth. So what was coming out was almost like these bizarro versions of these kids properties. But I think a big takeaway from that whole process, right? Like I started off in that traditional Hollywood studio system, right, right before it ended. So I had like, you know, normal movies that were in theaters and, they were like officially sanctioned and stuff. (laughs) And, and it just felt like making these, these fan films, making these short films, they just felt so much more authentic, so much more real. Like people were passionate about them and not just the people watching them, but also the people making them. And it didn't feel like it was being put through a factory, a sausage factory built around some algorithm. It was just, This doesn't exist. I want to see it exist. And I want to see it exist like this. And that vibe, that feeling, I realized, like, I had this epiphany that if I'm looking at the world kind of incorrectly, like, that doesn't have to just exist in the fan film world. That should apply to everything. Everything I do. So Castlevania was really that. You know, even though it's officially you know it's officially licensed like it's there's like suits involved i wanted to approach it like a fan film
1: now one thing that's a little bit different because of the fact i guess it was originally envisioned as a movie project because it has four half hour episodes and season two is going to double that to eight so it
0: wasn't really envisioned as a a movie project this is where the the there's some confusion on the backstory of this of this series Uh right there there were many castlevania projects in development over the last like 15 20 years and these are all separate projects right so so like so like even when when you asked me about the live action project like that was completely different
1: right i guess it's the four half hour episodes that creates that illusion maybe for some people and that's why i guess we're happy that there's going to be eight in season two but do you have a preference about what formats you tackle and are you happy with the half hour format in terms of the storytelling?
0: Absolutely. I think that, the, and the, I'll tell you why I like the half hour format. It's the length of those Saturday morning cartoons.
2: There you go. <laughs> Without the commercials.
0: Without the commercials. Yeah. They're, they're the half hours early. I mean, you, you look at each episode, they're not actually half hours. They're, they're 22 minutes. Right. <laughs> and that is the length of a Saturday morning cartoon.
1: Well, we certainly enjoyed watching the, the first season and we're looking forward to catching season two when it comes out. When What's the uh, release date currently?
0: Uh, October 26th. Yeah, it's going to be crazy. All
1: right. Well, we're looking forward to it. And thanks so much for joining us today, Adi Shankar.
0: No, dude, thank you for, uh, for having me. And then also, like, my mind's blown that, you know, you guys even, like, remember the shorts and all that stuff because I was... like dirty laundry the punisher one dirty laundry came out 2012
1: yeah it seems like it's more recent but it's not
0: (laughs) that's a long time ago that's a long time ago like that that's that's before there was an avengers movie
1: you know which one we first got hooked we hooked into uh katie sackoff because we're Battlestar galactica fans so it was the power rangers that dave and i really hooked into (laughs)
2: Well, and what I just learned recently is that there are actually two versions of the Power Rangers.
0: I'm sorry, wait, what? There are?
2: One that's uh, a little less safe for work, not oh, that either of them oh, is safe for work. Yeah,
0: but. Okay, yeah, but, uh, oh, you know, the short of the bootleg. Yes, 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 yes there are two versions. But then, it's sort of, right, the, the quote-unquote hardcore version has, like, literally five seconds of additional footage. It's really, right. you know, we're talking about... <laughs> It's yeah. really an inconsequential shot.
2: Exactly. Um, unless you're 13.
0: <laughs> unless you're 13. But even, I mean, honestly, even if you're 13 today, I mean, you, you look at the access to, like, stuff 13-year-olds have today, it's kind of horrifying.
2: Yeah, good point.
0: Um, so I think even if you're 13, I don't, I don't know how much that even means to you today. But if you're yeah. a time-traveling 13-year-old from the past <laughs> who came to the future, and, you know, then maybe, yes.
1: Well, yeah, we definitely, uh, our fandom for Adi Shankar work goes far back. So we're really looking forward to uh, Castlevania season two. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you, guys. Appreciate you.
1: All right. I love Dave there at the end where he was kind of surprised that we were into his bootleg universe properties and that we, that those were still relevant and noticed by the audience out there. But I think that really is something that makes me feel like, Along with Castlevania and now Legend of Zelda being on the horizon, Adi Shankar is an up-and-comer. He's he's gonna do big things, I think.
2: Well, yeah, and I was surprised that he was surprised.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He may feel like he comes from humble beginnings, but he is anything but your normal average writer and director. And and I really enjoyed talking to him. Well, we hope you enjoyed these Halloweeny segments that we had for you today. But that's gonna be it for this edition of Sci Fi Fidelity. You can keep the discussion going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity.
2: And we've got a couple of choices for which shows we're going to talk about in December. So we'll let you know what we end up choosing. But in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and now Spotify. And of course,
1: we are going to be dividing up the topics in January of 2019, but we'll be back in December with our regularly formatted podcast before that happens. But we do take suggestions for future topics, so if you'd like to suggest one, send an email to sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com or get in touch with us on social media. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month.